good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Rich. Um, I'm going to be leading us through this next part of the meeting. Um, and at the moment, as a church, we're in a series that we've been in for a little while now in the book of Ephesians that we have entitled Crafted. Uh, and last Sunday, uh, Gus took us through what was quite a pivotal couple of verses, a, a moment where Paul, who is the writer of Ephesians, uh, shifts his dynamic. He, he changes what he's talking about from focusing on God and who he is and what he's done to us and to how we should live in the light of that, what, what that wonderful truth, that rich theology in the first three chapters should mean for our lives. What, what, what should we do moving forward? We saw that we're called to be those who uh, live showing humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, and unity. And it's that theme of unity that Paul continues to build on over the next few verses. And so this morning, um, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, uh, verses 4 to 6, which is going to come up on the screen behind me as well. So this is what Paul writes. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And as I was kind of thinking through this talk, uh, trying to come up with a title, um, I think it's fairly obvious that there's one word in particular uh, which stands out that I probably had to include in there somewhere. So should it be uh, kind of crafted as one, crafted in one, crafted by one, crafted for one? According to these verses, all of those were true. Um, but if I, if I did them all, it would probably, uh, you wouldn't really remember it, would you? Um, the title of this morning's talk is Crafted as One, In One, By One, For One. Yeah, that's, that's catchy, isn't it? Uh, it's like Paul is being as, as super obvious as he can be, just in case you weren't sure what he was saying. The message is oneness. Uh, and in all, he uses that word one uh, seven times in this sentence. Uh, but they're organized in a very deliberate way. So the first three, uh, body, spirit, and hope, are all focused on the work of the Holy Spirit. The second three, Lord, faith, and baptism, are focused on the centrality of Jesus. And the final one is focused on the sovereignty of God the Father. And this whole section uh, is about hammering home this idea of unity. Unity between uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. A unity they've enjoyed since the dawn of time. And before that, forever, three persons so bonded together in love that we can say with complete integrity that they are one God. It's talking about the unity that we get to enjoy with the Trinity, with God. Now, as those who have been invited in, welcomed in to who God is, it's talking about the unity that we get to share as a community of believers centered around God. And so this morning, we're going to take each of those kind of one statements in turn. 
arranged around the three persons of the Trinity. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. And we've already seen in Ephesians so far, um, over the past kind of 16 weeks or so, um, Paul has described the church in a number of different ways. So he's described it as uh, citizens of a new kingdom. He's described us as members of a household, as parts of a building. And here he uses another illustration, that of a body. And it's one of his uh, absolute favorite images because of the unique way in which Paul became a Christian. So when, uh, before he was a Christian, when he'd been going around persecuting the early church, and suddenly he has this vision, uh, this appearance, Jesus appears to him on the road and says, uh, Saul, Saul, which is what he was called then, why are you persecuting me? And Paul suddenly realized that whatever he was doing to God's people on earth, he was doing to Jesus himself. And he uses that same imagery in 1 Corinthians 12, where he describes how every person in the church is valued in the same way that the human body just wouldn't function if it was only made up of eyes or ears. You know, we need uh, eyes and ears uh, and a mouth and a nose um, and heads, shoulders, knees and toes as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gus Rosie. Um, we need all of those, don't we? And a whole load of other things as well uh, in order to make us who we are. And that's true of the church as well. Every person here is incredibly uh, welcome, incredibly valued. If you're here today, you are incredibly valued because you bring something to who we are that no one else can bring. So thank you for coming out this morning. You've, you've brought something to who we are together that nobody else could have brought. And at the same time, uh, the church, though, is not just a collection of random parts. It's not a kind of uh, Frankenstein's monster that God has cobbled together um, from items and things that he just happened to have here or there at any particular time. Using that imagery of a human body, uh, when a baby grows, it's not that uh, in the womb, the different parts uh, of the body assemble independently of one another and then kind of get stuck together at the end. And then you get the miracle of birth uh, and it's all, oh, it's, it's a real person. No. It starts off from one cell that develops and grows and forms limbs and organs and features but it all starts in the same place. The parts of the body have never been independent beings. And as a result, they have an essential inbuilt unity. The same is true of the church. And although we haven't always reflected that throughout history, as we'll see a bit, a bit later on, there are no human structures of denominations or organizations that can change the spiritual reality that we are united as one in Christ. The true church is a totally new creation. It's not just a sum total of all of the different congregations in the world. When we gather here this morning as Oasis Church, we're not gathering as one segment 
of the church, a, a thin slice of a pie chart that all in all, all together forms who the church is out of all, a whole load of hundreds and thousands of different churches. When we gather here, what we're doing is gathering as a local expression of the heavenly assembly that we're all a part of. Tim Chester puts the importance of the church like this. Uh, We are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group. Christ died for his people and we're saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. In other words, when we are united to Jesus by putting our faith and our trust in him, when we're welcomed in to that oneness of the Trinity, we are at the same time united to one another by virtue of our shared union to him. Joining the church isn't an optional extra to our personal salvation. It's a fundamental result of our union to Christ. That when we are united to him, we are at the same time united to one another. You know, and union with Christ is the great equalizer. You know, we all enjoy the same access to God. You know, the same love of God, the same grace of God, the same righteousness of God. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are or, or our gender or our ethnic background or our nationality. It doesn't matter our strengths or our weaknesses or our jobs, our personalities, our history. All are united to Christ in the same way all share in his victory over death on the cross. No one person here will ever be more loved or more accepted because of anything they've ever done, any effort they've ever made. Because in the church, all are loved and accepted perfectly by the God who loves perfectly. Isn't that freeing? Uh, This is my third time now speaking on a Sunday morning at Oasis, um, and so it's still something I'm pretty new to. And whenever I stand up, there's always that temptation uh, to try and be a little bit more like someone else, to try and be like that uh, you know, famous conference speaker uh, that we've seen, to try and uh, be like Adrian by bringing along some props or speaking really quickly and jumping around, uh, to, to be like Gus by bringing donuts to bribe everyone so that he'll like us. And, uh, and yet, because I get the immense privilege of being uh, crafted as part of one body uh, with those guys and with each of you, I don't have to pretend to be anyone else. I can just be myself, which I think is a relief. <laughs> We're one body with different parts, different skills, different personalities, a uniquely diverse new creation defined by God's presence, God's spirit, his one spirit in us and with us. Without the spirit, without God's presence, being here, the church is just a social club. It is just that loose connection of independent parts that have just been cobbled together. And yet, the very same breath 
which God breathed into mankind at the very start in order to bring life itself. It's the same spirit who unites us to one another, who brings life to us as a whole by his very presence. It's him working in us that brings about that humility, that gentleness, that patience, forbearance, and love that enables us to maintain our unity. We heard something of that coming through just in worship as Pete was leading us, just kind of that idea of um, it's not that we have to try and try and try to lift God up. It's that when we bow down, that is when he's lifted up. It's the same idea. When we, when we give ourselves to the Spirit, that's what enables us to be those people that he's calling us to be. And he's the one who is constantly pointing us forward to the one hope that we have as well. That vision of the new heavens and the new earth uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, where one day Jesus will return to renew and restore everything. That's the hope that we have, a world where there is no more mourning, no more crying or sickness or pain. But it's not a hope that leads us to apathy today. That's the point of the order, uh, the order that Paul arranges his ones into. The body of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is the instrument by which God is calling out a new humanity for himself. The church is not the end goal. It's the starting point. It's the method by which God is using to bring about his kingdom on the earth now. That from a, a situation where the disciples uh, were scared, they were, they were, uh, Jesus had, had died and risen again and then gone back to heaven and they were huddled in a room in Jerusalem, hiding away, afraid of what the future might hold. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and they break out onto the streets on the day of Pentecost. And from that moment on, it's what the Spirit's been causing the church to do throughout history to break out in order to bring the good news of the kingdom into ordinary life. We are crafted together in order to do good works, as we heard earlier on, to bring the very presence of God with us into our own contexts, our own cultures. One body, one spirit, one hope. So that's the first three. For the next three, I'd like to tell you a little story. Um, I was uh, walking across a bridge the other day. Um, I saw a man standing on the edge, about to jump off. Uh, I ran over to him. I said to him, "Uh, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. I said, well, there's there's so much to live for. Like what? I said, are you religious? He said, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, I'm a Protestant. I said, no way, me too. Uh, Did you grow up Anglican or Baptist? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? And he said, Baptist Church of God. I said, are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? (laughs) He said, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, that's great, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? 
Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? And he said, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And I said, you heretic. And I pushed him off the bridge. Just for your peace of mind, I didn't push anyone off a bridge last week. But as we move on to look at these next three ones, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we need to recognize that for many people around the world today, the church doesn't look united. The picture of the church they see is one who is divided into uh, supposedly around 41,000 different denominations. At all points throughout history, the vision of the church, the image of the church that the world has is one that has divided again and again and again and again. And the trouble is, as we heard last time, uh, Gus was speaking to us, Paul urges us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. Uh, One of the things I get to do with Gus and Adrian is tag along to a monthly meeting uh, with a whole load of church leaders in Birmingham and with Anglicans and Pentecostals and uh, non-denominational people and loads of others who all get together once a month uh, and just pray. Just pray for the city. Pray for one another. And genuinely, it's something that I look forward to every month because there's just something about when God's people gather together where in the past there might have been division and now there's unity to center on Jesus, to lift him up, to seek more of his heart for our city of Birmingham. When we stand and lift our voices to a savior for our city, that feels like making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And the church over the course of history has allowed itself uh, to become so divided over things which sometimes are important and sometimes are not so important. Getting itself all in a muddle with the question, who are we supposed to unite with? Who should we even consider Christians? But in these verses, we find the clearest and most simple definition of who it is that we are united to. We unite as the body of Jesus, around Jesus, the one and only Savior, joined by the Spirit, living in hope of what's to come, with faith in him, signified by baptism, which enables us to approach the Father of all. He is the starting point, the ultimate non-negotiable. And it's not that other things, theology and doctrine and organization, don't matter. They matter a great deal. It's that too often we've agreed on Jesus and then divided on a load of other stuff, almost as if uh, our unity on Jesus wasn't quite enough. But what Paul says is that Jesus is enough. The gospel, the good news of Christianity... Is not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. One Lord, one faith in him. And of course, uniting around Jesus has implications for all of the other stuff as well because of who he's calling us to be. But 
too often in our history in, in the zeal to fight for the truth, the church has jumped past Jesus, the one who is the ultimate truth himself. I find that incredibly challenging for how we're to live now. One of the things I've been studying this year um, is some church history. So how did we get from uh, the time when the New Testament was written to today? Um, And as I've read into it a little bit, it's really challenged me uh, how easy it is to look back on history and read it with ourselves as the pinnacle. So we can look back on 2,000 years um, and conclude that at the beginning, uh, the church uh, was born and they had the spirit and that was great. And then uh, they got the Bible as well and that was even better. Um, And then at some point over time, they lost the spirit uh, and then they lost the Bible And then we kind of had the Dark Ages, and then we had the Reformation, and we recovered the Bible. And in the last few hundred years, we've we've reawoken ourselves to the Holy Spirit once again. And now here we are today, and we have got it all sorted. (laughs) And the thing is, though, that if we were to zoom out from this place, zoom out from Birmingham, look at the world as a whole, who we are, what we look like, is not what the average Christian alive in the world today even looks like. If we were to look at a cross-section of all the Christians living in the world, try to come up with one who best represents the average Christian, I guarantee it would look nothing like us. It would probably look more uh, like a poor uh, Latin American or Chinese farmer. We are not the pinnacle of the story. We're not even good representatives of what the average Christian alive today looks like, let alone through our history. And when we think about what it is to be one, united in faith around our Lord, we need to come with humility. I know that I need to come with humility because we're not the pinnacle of the story. But we are a part of Jesus' story. And that's the thing that matters. The whole of history isn't pointing towards us. It's pointing towards him. And this is where we get to the third part, the third one, focused on Jesus, the idea of baptism. And to start with, it seems a bit of an odd place to bring it up. You you have these big ideas, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one Father, one random moment where we take someone in their clothes, dunk them in a tub of water and bring them back up again. What's all that about? How does that fit in with these kind of great ideas of who God is, Trinity and hope and faith? The message uh, version describes Paul's uh, explanation of what baptism is all about uh, in Romans 6 like this. So what do we do? Do we keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we're lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father 
so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Baptism is a symbol that we have moved house, that we've been united to one another and to Christ. It's a moment that demonstrates an outward uh, reality, an outward sign of the inward transformation that has taken place. It's not that the act of going under the water and coming back up again is what saves us, but rather that it publicly announces and demonstrates the change that has gone on within us. A housewarming party, if you will, where you've moved house, we've set up home, and now we've invited our whole family around to come and see, to come and celebrate in our new home, to affirm that new reality. It's not an act of uh, religiosity. It's a declaration of what God has done inside us and as a way of entering into everything that he's got for us in the future. And by highlighting baptism, Paul is reminding the Ephesians, he's reminding us as well, that we've moved house. We live in a different country now. And we are totally united to those who are living there with us. One Lord giving one faith expressed through one baptism. So we're we're nearly there. That's six out of seven. Um, It's almost though, as if at at that point, Paul suddenly becomes self-aware that he's used the word one too many times. Um, And so he totally overcompensates by throwing in loads of the word all um, instead to try and balance it out. Um, So we've got one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Um, This passage, though, is is unusual in that it talks about the Trinity in the order that it does. So here we've, we've seen Spirit and then Son and now Father. And normally it's the other way around, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But by flipping it around, Paul is wanting us uh, to increasingly expand and open our vision of God's plans and purposes through his church. Remember, this whole section, this whole passage is around this idea of unity. You know, who, who God is calling us to be as a people together in order that he can reveal himself through us. That he can work his plans out for us individually and as a community and ultimately for the world and for all. In John 17, uh, we see Jesus on his last night before he goes to bed. Uh, goes to bed? He doesn't go to bed, does he? He goes to his death. <laughs> That's a lot more serious. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's about to go to bed. That's not no. Okay, Jesus is about to go to his death, which is a lot more serious. Um, and so he's there in the garden. He's praying on his knees. And what's he praying for? He's praying for us. This is what he says. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that we, those who believe in him through the message that we've heard passed down, might be one, might be united with one another, so that the world might believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He prays that we might be unified as the means by which the world will know that God loves them. That's the value that he puts on our unity. In the eyes of the world, uh, the, uh, the message, the good news of Jesus uh, is either confirmed and so is immeasurably strengthened or it's contradicted and is so immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships between those who believe it. How we treat one another the strength and integrity of our community is the measure by which the watching world will assess whether or not what we say is true. I could stand here this morning um, and preach the best, uh, the most biblical, the most charismatic, the most engaging sermon in the history of the church. Um, you have to imagine what that would be like. Um, but if those on the outside look in and perceive a group of people no different, no more united than any other, it will just pass them by. If they look in and see a people who are not marked by love for one another, it doesn't matter what we say. Because the world will know Jesus by the love that we have for one another. God the one who is over all and through all and in all, has chosen to reveal himself to the entire cosmos by the love that he's shared with us, that we are now to share with all. So what are we supposed to do? How do we earth this oneness? Well, I think that what we do will be different for each and every one of us here. But I think there are a few practical things that kind of stand out, first of all. And so first off, if you're here this morning and you would say uh, that you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation, the offer, is to come and be part of a family. Come and be welcomed into that depth of relationship that uh, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have been enjoying and reveling in since before the dawn of time. Come and join a family. You're invited into the midst of it. That's the invitation this morning. Maybe you're here uh, this morning and you would say that you've centered your life on Jesus, um, but you've never been baptized. Um, you're kind of a little bit surprised. Oh, why does Paul kind of single out baptism in the way that he does in this great list of um, characteristics of faith. Well, Paul says it's a great thing to do because it's a defining symbol of our unity to Jesus 
and to one another. It's the marker in the ground that says, I have moved to a new country of grace. And this is what it means. Maybe, though, you're here this morning, and the challenge for you is to think, how do I live this out? How do I live out this unity with one another, with my brothers and sisters? I think for each of us, we have to answer that for ourselves. So it might be that we have to ask ourselves the question, is there anyone that I'm divided from at the moment? Is there anyone that I've, uh, I've wronged or I've felt wronged by them that I need to go to today and say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. That's a powerful thing when we do that because it reveals something of the unity that we have in Jesus. When we make every effort to keep that unity of the Spirit, when we give of ourselves and come in our vulnerability and our humility and say, I want to live out this oneness by ensuring that I am in right relationship with my brothers and sisters, even at cost to myself, that's powerful. That's powerful. Why don't we stand? Lord Jesus, I thank you for that prayer that you prayed, that phenomenal prayer, that as you were going to your death, you chose to pray for us. And you chose to say, may all of them be one, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. That is the depth of of relationship that we are called to have to one another. God, I pray you would help us this week to do that. I pray that even now you would be stirring on our hearts, um, you'd be speaking to us about anything we might need to do, any changes we might need to make in order to give ourselves fully to maintaining that unity of the Spirit. Jesus, we know that um, it's not about uh, just trying harder. That's not going to lift you up. It's not that we just try more. We know we need more of your Spirit inside us. Jesus, without you, Without your spirit, we, we can't hope to show that humility, that gentleness, that patience, that forbearance, that love that breeds a unity which shows the whole world what you are like. As we go out from this place, may we go out a people who are strong in depth of unity with one another, strong in depth of truth of who you are, and what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.